Osiris. This podcast is in the loop, the Legion of Osiris podcasts. What does that mean? Osiris is a community of great music and culture podcasts. If you like this one, go check out others at osirispod.com and get in the loop. Osiris is partnered with Relics Magazine at relics.com. Hey guys, it's Dave and Brian. Big news for our little podcast. Beyond the Pond is proud to be part of the Osiris podcasting family. Osiris is a growing community of music and culture podcasts, connecting music fans like you with conversation, commentary, and of course, lots of music. Check out OsirisPod.com for more great podcasts like Inside Out with Turner and Seth, The Road to Now, The Daily Soundcheck, and many more. You'll hear much more about Osiris and our sister podcasts in the coming weeks, but first... Let's go beyond the pond. Hey, folks, I'm David Goldstein. I am Brian Brinkman. And I'm RJB. And you are tuned in to episode 28 of the Beyond the Pond podcast. This is the podcast in which Brian and myself, and tonight RJ, utilize the music of Fish as a means of getting a listener to listen to other non-jam bands go beyond the pond, so to speak. Because we love fish, we are fish fans. But the problem with fish fans is that sometimes all they listen to is fish, and then they wake up and they find themselves on like a Russian troll farm, just spreading all kinds of fake news and disinformation. And man, that's a horrible way to go through life, and that really could have been helped if you listened to other bands other than fish. We are beyond the pond, and we are here to help introduce you to other bands we're here to walk you through some excellent fish music and deep dive on both subjects um so what we typically do in most episodes for those of you who uh uh, have experienced beyond the pond before and for those of you who are just discovering us here um, we typically take a fish jam break that down talk contextually and historically about what was happening around that jam what kind of led to it and then we splinter off into a couple of themes and talk a bit more about new music um, that can be related from a thematic standpoint, from a sonic standpoint, and do a bit of a deep dive there. Uh, Tonight we're doing something a little bit different. We're going to kind of explain it as the episode goes along, but we're really, really excited about this uh, as we've got RJB on uh, with us, and uh, I think you guys are going to really dig what we're doing here. And Some of the themes that we're going to explore in tonight's episode include working it out on stage transgressive breakthroughs later stage career peaks and on that note let's get to the fish
right, so what you just heard there was a clip from the debut performance of Wingsuit. And uh, just kind of give you a set of sense of what we're going to do here today. When we were talking with RJ about getting ready to record an episode, um, we were kind of doing some research and tossing around some ideas. Um, we kept coming back to the idea of covering Wingsuit, the, uh, the overall set from October 31st, uh, 2013. And this is something unique. Usually what we go ahead and do is cover a uh, single jam, but we felt that there was a ton in this set that needed to be addressed at this point. Now, you know, four and a half years after the fact, um, a set that had a big impact on Fish 3.0 as a whole. And we kept coming back to a few musical themes that led us off into some of our favorite artists that I think you guys are going to really enjoy where we go with this episode. Um, so with regards to Wingsuit, you know, it's important to remember this was a heavily anticipated Halloween set. This came as the first Halloween uh, show since 2010, and this came on the heels of the incredibly popular and really successful Fall 2013 tour, a tour that really served as the band's 30th anniversary. Yeah, and, and Brian, I mean, I think the to me the year 2013, let alone the Fall tour, is just... It's it's kind of impossible to overestimate, I guess, how awesome this year was. Yeah. I think this was the year that many people came back into fish, right, from the Dick's 2012 run and the New Year's Eve run 2012. That was, uh, it, I, at least for me, it, that's when I got kind of reengaged with it was, was in the in the later half of 2012 and first half of 2013 um so many amazing shows in the summer including of course you know the tahoe the tahoe show with tahoe tweezer but also the the dicks 2013 run and and so many other shows and then the fall was just man they were um they were on fire it, it, we to me it was like they can still they can still do amazing things, you know. And I think in twenty two thousand nine to twenty twelve, I'm not sure that everyone believed that yet. I think certainly twenty twelve was them sort of reassuring the fan base. It took some time, but we got this. Yeah. Certainly with the Dicks eight thirty one twenty twelve show, um, a very solid I know twenty twelve holiday run. But no, for me definitely twenty thirteen, that was the year that I got fully back on the train, so to speak. I saw nine shows in twenty thirteen, which is actually the most shows I've ever seen in one year of fish. And uh yeah, that fall tour, I will go back and listen to that just any day of the week. Well, you know, I mean I think the thing that's crazy is um you know, you 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 look at this set and you look at this show uh, Halloween 2013, and as you guys have noted, there was definitely a shift in late summer 2012 and throughout the summer of 2013 that really built towards that fall tour that <clears throat> added to kind of the overall hype surrounding this Halloween show. And I think that, you know, just from an introductory standpoint, we can all agree that the band took an incredible risk with what they did here on October 31st, 2013. And, you know, for a lot of people, the results felt somewhat controversial. Um, they sidestepped their traditional cover album approach and instead debuted a full album of music that, from my mind, it really helped to launch them into this next uh, period in their career. And, you know, y you hope this next 30 year period in their career. They just covered an album from the future. 
<laughs> yeah, that's a good way to they put did. it. They did. <laughs> yeah, it was it was crazy to be there. I mean, I'm not sure why I was there because I had a seven week old son, but um, I went and then I think put in a lot of time when I got back. But regardless, it was um, the it was sort of a mixed reaction. I think I think a lot of people were. Including my, I was a little bit like I wanted to for some reason hear like a you know, 1972 album from the Allman Brothers Band or whatever Led Zeppelin. But you know, in, in retrospect, that was pretty silly to to be concerned with. Um, after that, I've, I must have watched this set, the the re-recording of the webcast, 20 times at least. It was it was a regular rotation in our house for a long time. Um, really special special moment that. I wish I had like appreciated more at the time, but I guess that's part of what you learn in life is, you know, make sure you try to appreciate things in real time. Yeah. I, um, I mean, I'm curious, you, you, you mentioned that you had had uh, kind of a desire to, to hear them cover an album when you got the playbill, were you disappointed in any way? I think I was. And I think we were also like, confused about whether it was a joke i think i think a lot of people were like they're just like fucking with us because that's what they do and like wingsuit it's like almost like two you can't like make this shit up you know um (laughs) and so i think we all until we like read through the playbill and then like you know got sort of word started traveling through the crowd that it was real um you know at the various bars and casinos in atlantic city which is what a wonderful wonderful city um but you know I think I think we were disappointed. I think a few of us were, but a lot of people, the, the wise ones, were, were excited for new music. Yeah, I watched this from my desk in Korea over kimchi and eggs, and this is how I watched all of fall 2009 and the entirety of fall 2013. Um, and let me tell you, if you ever have the chance to couch tour fish shows live in the morning, it's one of the weirdest and most wonderful experiences ever. It's like you... Um, especially in Korea, a country that has absolutely no drug usage in it. Um, It's as if you are engaging in some psychedelic secret at like nine o'clock in the morning. It's really, really bizarre. (laughs) But (laughs) I I loved the decision that the band made. Um, For me, it was the combination of risk. It was kind of ignoring their tradition, but at the same time honoring their tradition as a band. Um, and really embracing the unknown through songwriting, uh, we you know we see them embrace the unknown musically on a nightly basis, but doing it with these songs that nobody had heard before. Um, plus, you know there are some really high quality songs that emerge that I still love. That I think that the band is still learning in some cases how to fully play and how to fully present to their audience. Um, I, this it made it just one of my favorite aspects of Fish 2013. You know overall. I think I watched this show on my computer in our bedroom because my wife was watching something else in television. And me being a good husband, I really didn't want to burden her with this. This was before our daughter was born. So I had my legs up on my computer desk. I was, I think I was watching it and I was also tweeting at the same time. I remember tweeting during Fuego, oh, Fishman's listening to the Pie soundtrack. He's doing some drum and bass. And then two seconds later, um, I think it was Wade Wilby tweeted back at me, yeah, man, running size, drum and bass. Just taking in the experiment, uh, the experiment and the experience with everybody else. It was very cool. Nice. Yeah, and one thing of note um, in the playbill, you know, many of these songs were constructed from past jams that the band had re-listened to and used as a basis for songs, which was something I really loved about this and um, 
when I read about that, it definitely uh, excited me that much more about what was to come. Um, <clears throat> just a, a couple examples. Uh, the latter section of 555, which sadly has been removed, um, that is split from the uh, August 19th, 2012 light jam from Bill Graham. Uh, the 914-2000 soundcheck became parts of Fuego, Wombat, and Wingsuit. And the 2011? 2011, excuse me, yes. Uh, mm. From um, uh, Essex Junction. Essex Junction. Yeah, yeah. Um, and then the uh, August 12, 2010 Drowned, a uh, show I was at, one of my favorite jams I saw that summer, became uh, part of Waiting All Night. And if you go back and listen to that jam, you just hear... It's like waiting all night is sitting in the middle of that jam. It's so wild. Um, nice. You know, and for me, this exercise in really writing collectively, um, rather than, you know, what had been true for like the past basically 20, 15 years of fish writing uh, together, um, <clears throat> where they'd bring nearly complete songs to the table, this was transformative for the band in 3.0, and it pushed them to listen to each other uh, to, to, to listen to past jams, to communicate in specific ways that really helped them to take a leap forward in jamming during the fall 2013 tour, where you heard just some very, very high-quality jams throughout. And as we now know, they ended up on the band's 2014 album, Fuego, which is probably their most complete record since Story of the Ghost. Somewhat flawed in places, but certainly songs like Wingsuit, Fuego, and Wombat, and 555 were instant hits for the fans. They equally sounded familiar, but at the same time, new directional shifts for the band. Hey guys, quick break to talk about our very first sponsor. Cashortrade.org is disrupting the secondary ticket market. They've been called the Airbnb of tickets. They help real fans avoid scalping and purchase tickets for face value. Together, we are the change this industry so badly needs. Go to cashortrade.org slash Osiris and get 25% off a year of gold membership. The gold membership comes with the option of receiving push and text notifications each time a ticket is posted that you are looking for. You can also reply immediately without delay and gain the renew feature to bump your post to the top of the list increasing your post exposure when looking for hard-to-get tickets. Again, go to cashortrade.org slash Osiris, spelled O-S-I-R-I-S, and add the coupon code Osiris when you check out to get 25% off. I've used this service before and can tell you it works. Absolutely. And now, let's go beyond the pond. And RJ, you had kind of mentioned earlier, uh, and, and it felt this way from the couch, um, <clears throat> the band seemed a little bit nervous. The fan base didn't really know how to take in the set in the moment. Um, yeah. Few songs really received applause. Um, what was it like in terms of like the overall construction of the set and, and kind of what were your thoughts on as this was yeah. live? Yeah, I mean, you could listen back to it now. I mean, it's still very... Um, there's there's like interrupted sort of um, applause and I think we we mentioned in the notes like the first set is kind of a throwaway which I think is just you know because it's they were they were so focused on doing this obviously that they like I didn't I don't even remember what they played the first set because it was just like you know everyone was just everyone including the band and the audience was like all right let's just get through this so we can hear whatever this other stuff is but um 
the, the to me like the st- we called it the wingsuit set you know and, and that's what it was called for a long time i think many people thought the album would be called wingsuit but um that wingsuit um which you played with i mean to me that's the uh, that's the best song even considering fuego and, and others that are maybe that's probably more lasting fuego but i really like wing i think it was a good way to start as opposed to like fuego which is a little bit abrupt you know opener and and might have been like using your best using your best uh card or weapon or whatever the analogy is right away so you know what i mean like putting fuego to second i think got the crowd like into it with wingsuit and then fuego and then you know there were some some ups and downs but it was cool they used the acoustic setup for several songs and it, it felt i think like they were it felt like a lot of variety you know um interesting that that kind of got left out there and people don't remember it's about the about the guy who um who stole a bunch of their money um along with a lot of other famous people's money um and that's just something that i guess that's that story will just go go away with that song what's interesting with that song is if you listen to the jam out of the light on uh december 31st 2013 it's basically you never know without the lyrics so I think out of the three mm. songs that they played, that was probably the one I liked the most. Um, the other two, let's not speak of ever again. <laughs> <laughs> Poor I, Mike. I would, I, would, <laughs> I would certainly agree with you uh, about Wingsuit being, I think that's, my, that's definitely my favorite song from the set. And I would say that's a top five 3.0 song for me. I love, every time I've heard it, I've loved hearing it. It's never, it's never a song I've, feel like i'm you know pissed off that they're playing or think it's out of place i think it's one of those really unique songs that it kind of fits anywhere in a show like i could see that being a really interesting set to opener but i've seen it midway through the first set i've seen it close a first set i've seen it early kind of following a big jam in the second set i think they've played it as an encore once um seen it late in a second set like it really kind of fits in a lot of places that you know there are a lot of fish songs that you have to hear um at one specific point in in the overall structure of a show and wingsuit really kind of uniquely works a little bit of everywhere i'm a big fan of the first set walk off wingsuit which i know has been done a handful of times yeah yeah that's nice i love that
so the I guess one other thing just about that that set was the um, Mike got two songs in there, right? Five fifty five and and snow. Snow. Yes. Um, and snow got left on on the floor as you mentioned, but everything else was um, was Trey or or Trey and Tom or or Fish. Um, no page or or Fishman songs on that one. Yeah, it's interesting, especially since, and I guess this kind of speaks to. Um, and we'll kind of go with, with thematically what we talk about here when we get into the, the other music, but um, it kind of speaks to the influence that this writing session had. While it may not have resulted in immediate page songs or Fishman songs, you look at Big Boat, and that's a heavily collaborative record, mm-hmm. um, which I think you know this probably helped lead and, and, and give Page uh, a little bit more confidence in terms of bringing more songs to the table at that point in time as well as Fishman. I would say one of the best aspects of the set is and this is one of the things I loved in the moment and I've loved since then uh, you know these songs really clearly took on outside influences and many of them sounded more in line to me with modern indie rock than really anything Fish had tried in the past Um, you know we talked about Wingsuit Waiting All Night these really had the spaciousness and the airiness of like a Beach House or a Panda Bear song Um, in particular the song Waiting All Night sounds like a Yola Tango song off of their uh, And That Thing Turned Itself Inside Out record. To totally, me. totally, totally get that. strongly resembles deer hunters desire lines and the the latter section of that um that's kind of one of my favorite aspects of that song but winter queen as well that to me has this kind of like ringing blissful jamming that you can hear in vampire weekend and it just sounds like summertime every time they play that song and vampire weekend's drummer big fish fan huge fish fan Mm. yeah winter queen to me is like a, a a Trey doing Garcia sort of thing, but um, totally, especially in the jam. Um, yeah, I love that was it. a big that was a big grower song for me. I think that in the moment, I think it came late in the wingsuit set. I think it f- segues out of um, five five five, if I'm not mistaken. And I think in the moment, yeah. I took issue with a few of the lyrics and the music sounded a little bit too like airy and playful and over time it's become one of my absolute favorite songs on not only album fuego but hearing it live it's i don't think i've heard a bad version live even on the album fuego though it's got that fantastic horn arrangement from i think don hart yes that's just uh that added so much it's really good yeah 
one thing I think it can't be overstated is um, this set, along with some of the more notable peaks at early 3.0, like the Gorge 09, Meriwether Post 2010, Utica, uh, Super Bowl, uh, particularly the last show's first set, and the Fuck Your Face show. You know, these are some really transformative sets and shows of Fish 3.0. And, um, you know, from this point, from Wingsuit, they'd really go on a writing streak that's been unseen since the 1990s. Two full albums followed, a ton of debuts in the summer of 2015, some of the strongest of their career. And uh, I don't think that really a lot of any of that creativity and that sort of like writing burst would have been possible without this set. Um, you know, and I would say for whatever detriments, you know, we mentioned this earlier, the fans felt towards the set. It's kind of clear to me that the band needed a challenge like this. And I know that RJ, you guys have talked about this a lot on the helping friendly podcast, specifically with regards to the Baker's dozen. Um, it seems like the band needs challenges like this and really benefits from making these, from these challenges. And, you know, I would just say of note, uh, the chilling thrilling set, uh, from Halloween 2014 is one of the most popular Halloween sets that the band's ever done. Mm-hmm. It's a whole nother set of debuts, far better received than Wingsuit in the moment. I don't think there's any way you get that without the Wingsuit set. One particularly cool thing about the Wingsuit set, one that I don't think gets discussed nearly enough, is that uh, it was a rare opportunity for an entire fan base to experience something new at the same time. Yeah. So, like, like prior to the internet, unless you were a famous rock critic, you didn't hear albums in there. You didn't get albums in advance. You had to wait until Tuesday morning, like everyone else. Maybe tape it up the local radio station if they were given an advanced copy. So, nowadays, release dates don't mean anything because there's leaks. There's the big promotional run-up to release day with multiple singles being available. There's really no such thing as a shared experience everyone gets at once. But what was neat about Wingsuit is that nobody had heard these songs. Nobody was anticipating these songs. So everybody on Couch Tour, everybody in the audience, they had a shared experience of hearing the record for the very first time, which I think was really cool. And, you know, I mean, frankly, I'd kind of prefer that Fish do this than simply run through the motions with Eat a Peach or something. I know what the Allen Brothers sound like. Maybe I'd felt differently if I'd actually been there in the audience as opposed to streaming it at home, but it kind of brought me back to being 15 years old and counting the days to an album release, knowing that nobody else has heard the deep cuts either. I think um, I think I came home from the... I went to the 31st and the 1st and came back on the 2nd and watched the set with my wife on the 2nd and then like again on the 3rd and then again... Cause one cool thing about having a, a small baby is like we were both, you know, kind of a little bit free to do what we wanted professionally besides taking care of this very small baby we had. So we watched that wingsuit set a bunch. And I think by a week later, I was I was convinced that I had made a mistake by being by being, you know, split on it at the time. So I don't know, Dave, maybe if you were there, you would have been with me and we would have been pissed off. But I know that there was definitely like corners of the Internet um and definitely people i knew who were going to their first halloween shows and they were definitely a little bit disappointed um and they kind of felt like the band should have warned them a bit about this i guess there's oh come on (laughs) (laughs) i guess there's like a little bit of like understandable like aspect to that but at the same time um expectations are a bitch and if you've seen fish 
and you like fish and you continuously see fish, you kind of have to have the impression that whatever you expect to happen isn't going to happen and that they may do something totally out of left field that catches you off guard in the moment that you don't realize until, like you're saying, a week later, a couple months later, a couple years later, re-listening to a show. Um, I mean, I know from personal experience, you know, my first show, 22003, I went in wanting a Mike song, a Down with Disease, Divided Sky, You Enjoy Myself, and wanting these, like, big songs, and I came out with one of the weirdest and darkest and jammiest shows of 2.0, and uh, it took me a while to really realize that all right, that was the show I was meant to see at the time. And there's so much about it that I love in hindsight. Um, You know, my biggest takeaway from the wingsuit set is really all aspects of this set contributed to the growth spurt the band went through in 2013 and helped to push them creatively in ways I don't think anybody could have predicted on 3609 when they came back at Hampton. Um, I'd go so far as to say without this set, we don't get summer 2015, we don't get the Baker's Dozen as high quality as it is. I, I think that this really helped to change the course of Fish 3.0 in a lot of ways. Let's just say that if you were seeing Fish on Halloween in Atlantic City, irrespective of whatever they played, you still probably had a better night than most everyone else in the country. <laughs> and we did. We did. And um, Brian, I know you, you might get to this, but the the third set of this, which you know, we don't want to kind of skip over wingsuit, although we've we've talked about it a fair amount. I mean, yeah, yeah, yeah. the third the third set really delivered, and to me was a huge. Um, uh, you could sense in the room, like for fans, for the band, for everyone, it was just a huge release that was really welcomed and uh, and and needed. So that was, I think that helped make the the show too. You know that everyone got an extra set of awesome awesome jams after like after as i think trey said a couple times during the wingsuit set like how much they appreciated the crowd being so open to them you know experimenting on stage more or less yeah it felt to me that third set like the wedding reception after a wedding you know there's like tension that goes into an actual wedding ceremony and everyone kind of wants everything to go perfectly and you know in most cases the people who are getting married they've never done this before and they've got it all planned out for months and months and months and it's kind of this big unveiling and then the party comes and everybody just throws down and has a killer time and has too many too much to drink and smiles and laughs and hugs each other and that's kind of how the ghost and Karini felt to me like they were just okay we got through that and now we can just go out and play some music that we know everybody's going to love. We know the room's going to explode. And it resulted in, I would say, one of the best jams of uh, fall 2013. One of the best jams of the whole year. That 19-minute that Karini is uh, one of my favorite moments of that whole show. Yeah, that one's almost like a distant cousin of the Dick's 2017 Karini in the sense okay. that when it peaks around 13 minutes, it's all like awesome bliss a major jamming and it's just it's a multi-sectional fantastic version of the song that was probably the non-wingsuit highlight of that show maybe even the halloween run i think Uh, so stepping back for a second you know just following this show on halloween the band played what i would say is one of their best shows the whole year on november 1st 
really combined a unique set list with really excellent jamming in set two, particularly in Twist and Choctaw's Torture, um, as well as Light. Um, 11.2 yeah, was a little bit of a notch below, but one should not sleep on the theme from the bottom, the Down Disease, the Tweezer. And, you know, for me, just full disclosure, 11.1 and 12.29, those are my thoughts for the best shows of 2013. So, you know, to follow up a Halloween show with, with a show as high quality as 11.1 was just unbelievable. Well, what did you think of those being there, RJ? Yeah, it's interesting because th- those um, both 10, t- or I mean, sorry, both 11.1 and 12.29, I was I was at both of those. And I don't I don't know if they're my favorites of the year, but maybe they should be. Um, I love 12.29. I had an amazing time. Um, and actually, I had an amazing time at both. So I guess I agree with you, <laughs> actually, upon further consideration. <laughs> I've still got October 20th. Now, October 20th, 21st theme from Hampton. And October 29th, the Santander Arena in Reading as my two favorite shows of that year. Cannot go wrong with those second sets. I wasn't at either of them. Let's see. In the fall tour, I saw Worcester Night 2 and Hartford, both fantastic shows. But certainly the second set of 1220, uh, the second set of 1029 with the Down with Disease. And uh, the 20 years later, just general merriment, that to me is probably the best second set of 2013. Did we cover that down with disease ever, Dave? Yes, we did. It was that episode jams that make you want to run through a wall? I think it was episode eight. Episode eight. One of my favorite. My God. Ever done. That Good episode. episode. What a great episode. Um, yeah, you know, uh, I've said it before. I will, you know, say it again. I think that the momentum and excitement that was created by this set, you could tell it spilled over into New Year's Eve. Um, I think it was. When they played Wombat for the first time uh, on the New Year's Eve run, I'm not sure if that was 1229 or 1230, but the place just, you could hear MSG through the couch tour just absolutely erupt. It was unbelievable. What a reception. Um, and it really became clear over the next couple of months as we waited for Fish 2014 to happen how important this set was, how well received it, it, had, be, it had started to become. And this kind of all led up to the release of Fuego and then the Fuegoization of a summer 2014 tour where um, Fish played this album in the way that you would imagine a classic rock band to play their new songs and uh, kind of the way that they approached Farmhouse in summer 2000 where it was uh, very, very Fuego heavy, but all this led to good things for Fish.
We hope that you enjoyed that uh, segment of the wingsuit set. So, bringing us to our next portion of the podcast, which is always the jam in a large musical context. What we're going to do here is a bit different. We're each going to track three major artists, which we like quite a bit. Sort of uh, tracked them through their careers as it sort of relates back to the wingsuit set and the themes. And the artist that I'm going to talk about in these segments is one of my favorite artists of all time, a living legend. That would be Neil Young. So for the first segment, which we had talked about earlier, is working it out on stage. Much like in the way that Fish began to work out the wingsuit set and eventually Fuego on stage. So as that relates to Neil Young, the album I'm going to talk about from him is called Time Fades Away. So this album came out in 1973. Oh, also the song that we're eventually going to play from this album is called Last Dance. So... This is a classic case of recording the album live on stage, as in not so much a live album, but a full album of new material that just happened to have been recorded live. And other albums in this vein include the MC5's, uh, their album called Kick Out the Jams. Also, more recently, R.E.M.'s New Adventures in Hi-Fi, much of which is recorded on stage, and the recording process of which the band says is actually directly influenced by what Neil Young did with that time fades away. What he did was use a, a mobile recording truck outside to capture the sound. And the songs from this album were pulled from select dates of an absolutely grueling 60-date arena rock tour that nobody, least of all Neil Young, was happy to well, I was happy <laughs> to participate in. Every night on the tour, the band was playing one-third of the set would be entirely new angry material that found Neil Young barking and screaming at the audience, usually in some form of inebriation. These were pointed, angry songs that were about as far away from the gentle hippie of 1972's Harvest album that you could imagine. And, and Dave, yeah. it's interesting because I was saying earlier that I'm, I'm much more familiar with Live Rust, which I guess is like, what, five or six years after this. And maybe is a little bit more, uh, he found his balance. But this was like a little bit of a transitional, more transitional period, right? Yeah, definitely. Certainly, uh, which we'll talk about a bit later. This is the first of his albums to be figured uh, to what's called the Ditch Trilogy, where he said, at Harvest, I found the middle of the road and it was fine. So after the middle of the road, I decided to steer towards the ditch and found some more interesting people in there. But yeah, whereas Live Rust was a compilation of uh, songs from that era, this is all just like original material. And sort of what's interesting about this record with the rehearsals, he was going to use his backing band, the Stray Gators, who were the same band that he had used on a Harvest. And he had actually planned on using the crazy horse guitarist Danny Witten, because he figured some of these songs needed uh, some more oompa-pa. But at this point, Danny Witten was unfortunately, he was a heroin casualty. I mean, he would fall asleep on his feet playing the guitar, and facing what was his biggest tour to date, Neil Young made the decision to, uh, I guess, fire Witten from the band, 
allegedly he gave him 50 bucks and a plane ticket back to Los Angeles and it actually died of an overdose of alcohol and Valium that same evening. So that was hanging over the tour. And Neil Young allegedly hates this album. He's been called it the worst record he's ever made, albeit great quote. A documentary of what was happening to me. I was on stage playing all these songs nobody had heard before, recording them. I did not have the right band. So kind of what you get is a tequila-fueled onstage exorcism every night. These are loud, angry songs. This guy's got a lot to get off his chest. He played the entire tour with a Gibson Flying V for some reason. And a level of ornery, which resulted in he did things like implored his drummer Kenny Butcher to play louder until his hands started to bleed. There was a date at the Oakland Coliseum which ended in a riot with bottles flying through the air. And that based upon funny. all Yeah. I mean, based upon all of this, you might expect time fades away to kind of suck. But I mean Young is as is his way is being a bit harsh on himself here. This is an incredible album. I mean, it sounds kind of like what an idealized version of an early 70s arena rock show would feel like. Smoky, unhinged. I mean, it sounds like the awesome cover art, which depicts one of these packed smoky arenas. But I mean, more so than anything else, what kind of comes across this album is an air of menace, especially in the opening title track, the song Yonder Stands the Sinner, and also uh, the closing track, Last Dance, this version of which actually features his compatriots David Crosby and Graham Nash in backing vocals, because they were added later in the tour because Young started to lose his voice. And even these dirty hippies end up sounding really demonic on this song. <laughs> I've heard some jam bands attempt to cover Last Dance and also the song Don't Be Denied. And by jam bands, I mean Widespread Panic. They sound stupid doing this. I like Widespread. <laughs> they should not try to play these songs because they just don't capture the spirit of them at all, and it would be impossible for them to do so. I think the more you talk about this record, the more you embody the uh, sentiment of Neil Young. Yeah, I agree. <laughs> feeling I it coming fear, through. I can fear you, hear you becoming more and more ornery. <laughs> so just to wrap this one up, aside from a handful of songs where uh, Neil Young just does uh, solo singing at the piano, these songs are angry stomps performed from an audience that had no idea what they were hearing and were probably expecting something else entirely. Sounds kind of familiar. <laughs> this was the follow. <laughs> this was the follow up to his most successful album at that point, Harvest. That was a much more gentle album. I know he played some songs from Harvest. I think the encore that night was usually Southern Man, but this was. Um, Certainly, Neil Young working shit out on stage. And this album, actually, it's interesting. Up until recently, when it was reissued on vinyl and put on streaming services, it was not available on CD for many, many, many years, hmm. almost to the point where it would be considered out of print because Neil Young wanted it that way. But as a document of uh, this tour and just very... Interesting, incredible rock and roll album. I would recommend Time Fades Away highly. And now we're going to play Last Dance from uh, that album.
All right. So next in this segment, um, we're going to talk about Miles Davis. And I just want to say, first of all, Brian and Dave, it's it was nice of you guys to allow me to go backwards in time, because as we learned from our HF pod beyond the pond crossover, I don't really know anything about current music. So that would have been awkward to talk about, you know, current music <laughs> and, and bands. So going back, you know, 50 years or so, which is cool for me. Um it, it was I'm really glad the way this came together, though, because I got to like reflect on this as as Dave was just talking about with Neil Young. But for me, you know, Miles Davis is one of my my favorite artists of all time. And, and one of the main reasons is that he was constantly evolving, changing, pushing himself, pushing his band. And he like a lot of artists, but but not all surrounded himself with up and coming musicians in each part of his career. That was sort of a, a recurring theme for him. And what we're talking about now is the, the sort of 1965 era. And the, the album is um, called live from the plug nickel 1965 and just a little bit of context. So jazz had been like fairly straightforward until the early sixties. Um, there were some, you know, evolutions between bebop and hard bop and things like that. But it's it was it was essentially still jazz until this like idea of free jazz, which Ornette Coleman started in the late fifties, um, which was a little bit more of the experimental and non traditional um, stuff that Coltrane, I think, was was known for later on. But this was something that Miles Davis was just not really into. Um, Part, one of his like main chips on his shoulder throughout his whole life was that white critics, music critics, were like pushing these ideas, and then the black jazz musicians just did stuff because they wanted to please the white critics. So it was like it was something that that comes up for him again and again throughout his career, and um, with with for good reason, you know. And he probably called those white critics motherfuckers. He did. He called them all. He called everyone motherfucker, it, and that was in positive and negative. So you, it, it's hard to know. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but so so this free jazz movement comes along and it's much more like spacey and, you know, a, a little bit hard to follow, esoteric, etc. And he was like, you know, these people are doing this. I, I like some aspects of this, but this is not where I want to go. And um, a lot of jazz listening sort of fell off at that point after its peak in like the late 50s, which was kind of a a, a you know, peak era for, for traditional jazz, but he had this uh, insane ability to, to see the future in a way that a lot of artists, you know, a lot of the best artists do. And, and he, and he was one of them. Um, he started listening to the Beatles, um, Chuck Berry, you know, Elvis, James Brown. And in 1964, I think he, he started trying to add rock music to like his jazz playing and it that was like pretty unheard of at the time and he added this drummer um named tony williams who he was 17 at the time um example of him just adding a new sort of young person who he thought represented where where jazz was going and um this kind of iteration of Miles Davis was known as the second great quintet, um, which was Tony Williams, Herbie Hancock, Ron Carter on bass, Wayne Shorter, who played saxophone and Miles Davis. This is like one of the best three year periods, but I just really appreciate that he was so um, tried to push himself to stay ahead of the curve. Um, and uh, this was one of those times where like jazz was going in one direction and he was adopting some portions of that, but he was like, he wanted to go in a different direction. Um, so this album um, was recorded in 
the end of 1955 at the Plug Nickel, which was a pretty famous jazz club in Chicago. And almost all of these songs were were kind of either jazz standards or Miles Davis uh, compositions. So they weren't like new music, but they were pushing themselves at the time to completely um, try something different with this music. And if you if you listen to Miles Davis at all, if you listen to to this recording, you'll hear Tony Williams, um, the drummer, just really pushing pushing the band in different um, directions and in new directions. Um, compared to what it was, you know, over the few years before. So that's what you'll be able to hear. And it's it's so beautiful to me that it was representative of this, like, peak in his career, but based on the fact that he was being a little bit contrarian, but also, you know, pushing himself to work it out with his band and also kind of figure it out as they went, which I think is pretty hard to do as a musician, right? Like, to put yourself out there and take risks and, and just assume based on your own supreme self-confidence that it would all work out so i think i guess i want to leave leave the the audience with this you know the song so what it's the title it's the first track off of kind of blue and if you know that album and you know that song you'll you'll hear the difference because this is a completely different take on that track and um, i think it's just really um representative of of what he was trying to do on this album and what he was trying to do at the time so Check it out. Um, this is So What from uh, Live at the Plug Nickel. for giving us a little bit of So What from Miles Davis's uh, Live at the Plug Nickel in 65. That was really, really fantastic. Um, jumping in here with uh, one of my favorite artists. This is just kind of a note. This is an excellent... This has been such a fun podcast for us to plan uh, and research um, because I think we all got to deep dive and listen to a ton of different sections of uh, our favorite some of our favorite artists careers, which was great. And for me, um, I got to spend a lot of time these last couple of weeks with Bob Dylan. And, um, the first era, the first album I'm going to talk about is, uh, Rolling Thunder Review, which, uh, was where he was really working a ton out on stage at a really unique and really important part in his career. 
Uh, the song that I'm going to feature here in a little bit is uh, is Isis off of Rolling Thunder Review, the uh, bootleg series volume five. Um, so of note, this uh, tour was Dylan's second tour since 1966. And this is a massive caravan of backing musicians that joined him on a two-leg tour, which serves more as a retrospect of Dylan's overall career to this point than a proper promotion of his recent work. Uh, you've got Joan Baez, Roger McQuinn, Ramblin' Jack Elliott, T-Bone, T-Bone Burnett, and Mick Ronson. Yes, that Mick Ronson from David Bowie, uh, among many others who filled out the Traveling Roadshow. Uh, this was a two-leg tour stretched across fall 1975 and spring 1976. And there are some contradicting theories that this tour was named after um, either the Native American shaman of the same name or the U.S. bombardment of North Vietnam. However, Dylan, in classic Dylan fashion, claimed that one morning he was thinking about the tour while he was sitting on his porch the skies opened, they started thundering and raining, and the tour's name came to him. So the truth is somewhere probably in between. Um, <laughs> Dylan's 17th LP, Desire, was released in between two legs of the tour, and you hear definitely more songs uh, on this release and throughout the tour off of Desire than you do of his 1975 release, Blood on the Tracks. Um, so the, the kind of inception for the tour came around the conclusion of Desire's recording sessions. Um, At that point, Dylan gathered a number of musicians, going so far as to grab people out of bars and off the streets uh, to get them to all jam at New York's Midtown Studio instrument rental space. So just imagine Bob Dylan kind of midway through his career, mid-30s, early 40s, grabbing you in a bar and just bringing you into a jam with him at a rental studio. Uh, It's a pretty cool idea. Um, For much of the rehearsal period, many of the musicians who actually jammed with Dylan had no idea that they were actually preparing for a tour. And that was really the sense that Dylan wanted was this kind of loose, ramshackle, traveling roadshow feel. Um, There are lots of ideas that were tossed around for the tour that had nothing to do with the music. um, And it was really clear that this was a pretty creative boom period for Dylan following nearly 10 years of subdued public presence and some of the more challenging records of his career. Um, So with Blood on the Tracks, his most recent record before the tour started, Dylan had found a way to really communicate, and he offered insight into a marriage breaking apart, speaking with more clarity about his personal life than he had ever really offered before. Um, This would continue thematically through Desire before he began directing his music towards more uh, overtly spiritual plane. And the clear insight into his own feelings really translated into this renewed approach in his overall catalog. And many of the songs played on this tour really sounded their freshest since at least 1964. Um, The tour was confined to the Northeast, aside from a few dates in Canada, and for the most part was really played entirely in small theaters. That said, the fact that Dylan was premiering new music, he was here playing with Joan Baez for the first time in over a decade, made it a pretty massive draw overall. And like I've said, on stage, this show had a festival uh, feel to it. Every time the curtain rose, a new act would be playing. Dylan floated through the entire performance, duetting with Baez, performing his own sets, playing with a full backing band, guesting on different sets. It really flowed with this sort of chaotic ease and felt like it was a late 19th century traveling roadshow at times. Um, 
Dylan also chose to perform much of the tour in whiteface makeup, adding to kind of the overall festival atmosphere and the glam rock spectacle of the show. Um, he was really inspired at one point. Uh, I think he saw the Rolling Stones in 1972, and that was what inspired him to go back on tour two years later with the band. Um, and so kind of the, the era, having Nick Ronson there, he was, he was getting a ton of new influences from where rock and roll was at at the time that had nothing to do with where he was at the peak of his career, you know, 10, 10 12 years or before that. Um, more than anything, what really gets me about this is that this tour represented the most successful next step for Dylan. He reinvented many of his songs, and here the music of his early peak period matches the, tr- the change in his voice in ways that they simply couldn't have since his retreat from society in the late 1960s. Um, and everything, everything that Dylan accomplishes post-1976 is a result of this tour. This was the reinvention reset that he needed. Um, but yet, like his early peak from uh, the, in the early 60s, this just wasn't sustainable. Uh, following the tour finale, May 25th, uh, out west in Salt Lake City, Dylan wouldn't appear live for another 21 months, save for his uh, couple song performance on the last waltz, and he wouldn't release a record for another two years. Uh, the live album Hard Rain was released, and that documented the last, uh, the last shows of this tour. But following this, Dylan would become an evangelical Christian, would release a number of records in the late 70s and early 80s before retreating again. So this was really kind of like a big creative boom period before he kind of retreated back into society, back uh, into the fringes again. Um, In the end, what really makes this documentation so important and critical for Dylan is that the fact that he really caught lightning into the bottle live for the first time in nearly a decade and was able to showcase the ability to transition his earliest material into a new phase, as well as point the direction forward long-term for his later career peaks. Uh, I would argue without 1975 and 76's peak period, one really has to wonder where Dylan would have been past the 1970s and if we would have heard from him as an influential musician. So without further ado, we're going to go ahead and we're going to play Isis a little bit off of uh, Rolling Thunder Review here. I hope that you guys enjoy this and I hope that you get uh, a ton out of this as well. Cold in the north. I gave him my blanket, and he gave me his 
I was thinking about gold. I was thinking about diamonds and the world's biggest necklace. As we rode through the canyons, through the devilish cold. I was thinking about ISIS. As you saw, I was so reckless. She told me that one day we would be All right, guys. So the next segment we're going to talk about here is transgressive breakthroughs. This was a good... Um, kind of thematic area that emerged when we were thinking about wingsuit and what had come out of that being, you know, sort of a little bit controversial and and a little bit um, off the beaten path. And this was really fun to think about for all the artists that we all have been have been talking about. And I'll I'll start with with Miles Davis. Um, this is it's going to be hard for me to contain my excitement, but I'll try to talk about um, Jack Johnson um, tribute to Jack Johnson as it was later called. But um, I talked to her before about how Miles Davis was so good at staying ahead of the curve and, and really like trying, um, trying to push himself and, and, and his band forward. And he, in his autobiography he talks about how this is not common for jazz musicians. You know, it's sort of like the traditional jazz musician route is you like learn how to play well, you play well, and then you just keep doing the same thing and you like sit on a chair and play your horn until you like can't do it anymore. That was like, that was the way that it sort of worked. And he just, in, in many ways he was not, he was transgressive, you know? Um, and he, he could have done that, you know, he could have ended up being just like a traditional jazz musician and, and been incredibly successful, but he just, he just didn't. Um, so I want to talk a little bit about this album, uh, tribute to Jack Johnson. If you haven't heard it, at least you can, you can pause this now and go listen to the whole thing and come back or just wait until the episode ends. I'm sure that Brian and Dave would probably prefer that you wait until it ends, but, or if you listen to a live one, the snippet of trumpet music that you hear mm-hmm. before mm-hmm. the beginning of Wilson is uh that's tribute to Jack Johnson playing over the PA at the. That's garden. a good point. I'd forgotten about that. As long good as work. you promise to come back, I don't care. Yeah, you know what I mean. Like, yeah. <laughs> the other option is to play it really loudly in the background now, <laughs> while we're talking. Like while we're talking, and then you hear us. You don't really have like, to hear us. Then you just hear yeah, Miles ex- Davis, and that's exactly. <laughs> it's kind of funny because we're all going in different. Um, we we didn't do a visual timeline of our you know, a lot, all of our overlapping artists, but they were all doing these things in similar times. So yeah. we were just talking about, um, Bob Dylan and what, what year was that we, that we were in? Uh, like 1975, 76. Okay. So we're going back to 1970, you know, what was going on in popular music. There was a lot of funk, a lot of rock music had, had broken through the, the kind of heyday of Elvis and the Beatles and all that had passed. And, um, Really, it was about hard rock and funk, and um, this 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 um, boxing promoter um, who had worked with Jack Johnson, the boxer, um, came to um, came to Miles Davis and asked him to do a soundtrack to a movie about the boxer. Um, and Miles was getting into sort of some of the social social racial justice, black power stuff that that he ended up being much more prominently, um, you know in support of and as the time went on but he was just getting into that and he had just put out you know in a silent way and bitches brew and that was sort of the beginning of jazz fusion um really kind of moved into this direction and he i think revolutionized this whole entire um genre with this album probably the best jazz fusion album of all time and and jazz fusion if you just hear the the name it sounds 
um it reminds me at least of like elevator music you know like it's it, it can be in the later years of jazz fusion it's like the synthesizers and and the the weird kind of 80s um jazz fusion but back in these days it was really fucking badass in my opinion um I don't yeah, know this guys... is not the this is not the jazz fusion of the yellow jackets and spirogyra and... <laughs> right spirogyra exactly yeah um so you know a lot of people consider this to be the best jazz fusion album of all time um there's a, a publication jazz time um that said that wrote that his 1970 album bitches brew helped spark this fusion of jazz and rock and jack johnson was davis's most brazen and effective venture into rock one that blew the floodgates fusion floodgates wide open launching a whole new genre so incredibly important album in the history of of jazz but also in the history of rock and roll i think um the lineup is incredible it's Miles Davis. He discovered this guitarist and and kind of brought this guitarist on named John McLaughlin, who you guys may have may have heard of. Um, another guitarist. Mm. <laughs> you heard of him? May have heard of John McLaughlin. He did the he did the news program, the McLaughlin Group, um, for yes. a long time. But um, but in the spare time, he he played guitar. Um, Herb, <laughs> Herbie Hancock and Chick Corea both played on the on the keyboard and synthesizers two two drummers jack d john ed and billy cobham who's classic and just a, another good example of how many awesome musicians miles davis helped launch and we'll talk more even more about that in the next segment but this is crazy so he wrote these two long compositions for this movie soundtrack tribute to jack johnson and what you hear if you just put the album on is you hear um piano you hear drums you hear a little bit of uh a little bit of guitar and john mclaughlin starts sort of strumming and about two and a half minutes into the song miles davis starts soloing and that's what you hear on the album and apparently the way that came together was that everyone was just kind of jamming but you know it was recording and they were waiting for him to show up for miles to show up and he showed up and came in and picked up his horn and, and started playing and that's what ended up on the album. So what you hear and before he comes in, it sounds like it's, you know, um, intentional that there's no trumpet from the beginning, but it just kind of how it worked. And that's, it's kind of amazing to me thinking about that, that that's not really how music is recorded these days. Like that, that's how music was recorded for in a lot of different genres, you know, for a long time, it was just people are in the studio playing and someone presses record. And then later they kind of string it all together. Um, which I think is is pretty cool, but um, this kind of changed the way that jazz music was understood, and and I think changed the way that that, that he was understood too. Um, one really kind of funny um, footnote is that, according to to him, and and anyone who hasn't read read his the Miles Davis autobiography, Dave mentioned earlier the term motherfucker. It shows up in the book, I mean, hundreds of times in, in both positive and negative contexts. Every other word. <laughs> like that guy played like a motherfucker or that guy was a motherfucker. And I'm like, am I supposed to understand that he was good or bad? But it doesn't matter. Anyway, it's a good read, super informative. But um, his take on this album is that a lot of white musicians were doing similar stuff kind of you know rock funk with a little bit of jazz and columbia records didn't um promote 
this because like they didn't want to give credit to a black guy for doing what white guys were doing and so just another kind of theme in, in him having a chip on his shoulder which you know he may have been right i have no idea but um i'm sure there's some truth to that but it was just it's funny um and the last thing i'll say before we go into um a little bit from the first track which is called right off um I found a quote from Iggy Pop from 2010, which Iggy Pop is, you know, pretty far from Miles Davis, in my opinion, in terms of of music. But um, in a 2010 interview, he said that around 1985, he purchased um, Sketches of Spain and Jack Johnson in a record shop. And he said, they've been my inspiring companions ever since. One tears me apart and the other puts me back together. And that's just a really cool um, kind of postscript that shows how far his influence really went so um we'll leave you with a little bit of uh the first of two tracks from jack johnson called right off so enjoy segment on transgressive breakthroughs I'm going to talk some more about Neil Young and the album I'm going to talk about is Tonight's the Night and the song we're going to play from that is Roll Out a String Tonight's the fucking night I mean <laughs> this is technically the third installment of the Ditch Trilogy which I had, uh, had previously discussed when I was talking about Time Fades Away, it was actually recorded in 1973, but wasn't released until, I believe, January 1975, after which Neil Young had already released the second part of the Ditch trilogy called On the Beach. Truth be told, this album probably needs its own podcast episode or three, but I'm going to try my best to dissect it somewhat here. And... Kind of what makes this album a transgressive breakthrough of source is precisely what the music critic Eric Weisbard wrote in 1995's Spin Magazine Alternative Record Guide. And he said, Tonight's Tonight was, quote, a major album that never stopped sounding off the cuff. This is accurate. Inspired largely in part by not only the death of uh, the crazy horse guitarist Danny Witten, but also Crosby, Stills, and Nash roadie Bruce Berry, who overdosed on heroin seven months after Witten. 
it's spooky and kind of heavy going over the course of 12, uh, it's 12 tracks. This is a morning album. However, the style of mourning could be best described as an Irish wake, a Viking funeral. This is the sound of a band that would purposely get shit-faced on copious amounts of Jose Cuervo tequila and cocaine to achieve a, quote, glow of sorts, and then attempt to play these songs in the wee hours of the morning and then purposely leave all the bad notes in. So, like Neil Young, he had reportedly wanted to make a record that was stark naked and raw. He didn't want to fix any of it. In a sense, was the antithesis of uh, the overly fussed-over tracks that he once made with Buffalo Springfield in an attempt to one-up uh, Sgt. Pepper's Lonely Hearts Club Band. Because I know when uh, his first band, Buffalo Springfield, was around the late 60s, there was a lot of overproduction because everyone wanted to try to make their Sgt. Pepper. And certainly Tonight's Tonight would be considered the complete opposite of that. Can so, I just say, Dave, real quick, that... Yeah. Um, with Buffalo Springfield, he did not succeed um, in making a Sergeant Pepper. Can we just, can um, we just say that definitively or not? We can well, agree on that. Buffalo Springfield, his contributions, the song Broken Arrow, the song Expecting to Fly, it definitely mm-hmm. had some uh, Sergeant Pepper-ish overproduction touches. His songs were pretty good, but I mean, with Buffalo Springfield, he also had Stephen Stills, Bruce Palmer, Richie Foray. I mean, it was mostly a Stephen Stills project. So, uh, I ride for the second Buffalo Springfield album any day of the week, the first and the third, not so much, but the second one that's, um, if I could just digress, uh, a bit of a moment here. There was one time I wrote the Fish Organization saying Fish should cover the Buffalo Springfield song Bluebird. Paige should do lead vocals on it. It would be great. And I think I got a postcard back from management saying maybe Fish will play Bluebird. Thanks for writing, David. Nice. Well, that was nice. nice yeah. Yeah, it was all right. Um, Dave, you sort of glossed over in the last segment the fact that <laughs> Neil Young fired fired this guy and then he died the same night. But um, yeah, death was kind of following him around this uh, this time in the career, huh? Oh, it absolutely was. It was. Yeah, I'm sorry if it sounded like I glossed over that. I mean, at that point, no, no, you you didn't of, actually. I just wanted to like I just wanted to highlight the the craziness of that. No, this was. This was the 1970s. This wasn't the late 60s anymore. This wasn't peace and love. This is the point where the party is getting kind of grim and people are starting to die and actions have consequences. That being said, while Neil Young might not have been shooting heroin, I mean, the amount of tequila and probably cocaine that went into the recording of this album. I mean, what was crazy was that the songs for... Tonight's Tonight, they were actually recorded in a makeshift rehearsal hall, which was actually the back of a retail store. Um, They used a sledgehammer, and they put a hole in the side of the wall so they could run cable from a recording truck in the alley next door. So um, what's interesting is that this band, it consisted of uh, Ben Keith on pedal steel, who was uh, with the Stray Gators and Time Fades Away. And the Crazy Horse Rhythm Section, Billy Talbot and Ralph Molina. And this hotshot newcomer named Nils Lofgren on second guitar. And yeah, this is the same Nils Lofgren who joined the E Street Band in the 80s. So um, very few individuals have um, actually, he's the only person on the planet who can say, I played on Neil Young's time, uh, 
Neil Young's Tonight's the Night album, and I'm in the fucking E Street Band. So let's give it up for Nils Lofgren, people. <laughs> it's quite a resume header for you. Yeah, that's uh, if you're applying for the job of rock guitarist, you just put those two things in bullet points, and they should probably hire you on the spot. So what these guys would do is they would get shit-faced, they would wear sunglasses all night, and they would drunkenly play songs for a non-existent audience. So it's not exactly a recipe for success. If you went and uh, told the CEO of your label, I've got an idea for a record, we're just going to get really drunk at 1 o'clock in the morning and then start making the album, you'd probably think you were crazy. And this indeed sounds like it should be a horrible mess. It's the kind of thing that sounds incredible when you're stoned but doesn't hold up in the light of day. And that's true to an extent because on this record, uh, New Young's voice, it cracks repeatedly. It's questionable as to whether the guitars are always in tune. He sits too far from the microphone. And yet, I mean, the feeling that I get when listening to Tonight's Tonight is how rock and roll music could ever be this good and whether it will ever be this good again. It may well be my favorite rock album of all time. It's unquestionably my favorite Neil Young album. This is a record I like to put on late on a Friday night when usually uh, my wife and Shout are very much asleep. I'll get a bourbon. I'll get like a double IPA. I'll just listen to this and sink into the couch. Um, ben Keith. that there are many Beyond the Pond recording sessions that have ended with Dave saying, all right, I'm going to go listen to Tonight's the Night. That's awesome. Yes. <laughs> it's a great album. It's it's a it's a definitely in the rotation here too. Yes. Still, amazing. I mean, there have been some text messages, which usually, I think, from Brian, just saying like, "Wow, tonight's tonight. Wow, I'm listening to this. I'm drinking. Wow." And I said, <laughs> "Me too." So what's interesting? Um, the pedal steel on this record from Ben Keith, who was a uh, incredibly well-respected guitarist uh, throughout his career. I think he died a few years ago at age 73, unfortunately. Um, the pedal steel is primal here. It's very spooky, especially on the, the prairie ambience of the song Albuquerque, which Fish actually covered a handful of times in 1998 and managed not to screw up. And as batshit insane as the album is, the ensuing tour might have been even crazier. Because once again, the tequila played an outsized role. And uh, the legendary title song, Tonight's Tonight, was often stretched out to over a half hour, augmented by uh, some stories that Uncle Neil would tell. They had a palm trees on stage. The theme was somehow based around uh, Miami Beach in Florida. And once again, the audience had no idea what to make of these songs either. And once again, as I said, the album didn't come out until January 1975. So, you know, the audience, they had some time to ruminate exactly on what the hell they just heard. But really, I mean, this is an album. You just got to hear it to believe it. You got to listen to the whole thing in one setting. You do. Um, you do. Yeah, because it holds together very much in context. I think not every song might have been taken from the sessions. There was um, the song Come On Baby, Let's Go Downtown was taken from an earlier concert from the Phil Maurice when Danny Witten was still alive. And I think the song Borrowed Tune or Look Out Joe might have been from a different session entirely, but they're incorporated pretty seamlessly into the record. But just in terms of a landmark 70s rock and roll album, I don't think this can be beat. 
and we're going to play the song World on a String and uh, happy to have you listen to it Thank you, Dave, for walking us through tonight's night. One of my favorite records of all time. One of RJ's favorite records of all time. One of your favorite records of all time. What a fucking great record that is. Um, We're going to take a step back in time once again here, nine years prior, and talk about a big transgressive breakthrough for Bob Dylan. The album that we're going to focus on here is Bringing It All Back Home. And the song that I'm going to play off of this is called It's All Right, Ma, I'm Only Bleeding. So, this was one of Dylan's, uh, one of his, or his first of two albums in 1965, and while it can be argued that the latter release, Highway 61 Revisited, is certainly more famous and perhaps more impactful long term, bringing it all back home is where the big transition all begins for Bob Dylan. This record is split into two halves, with side A being backed by a full band and seeing Dylan play electric guitar for the first time on recording, um, which preceded his July 20th. Uh, release of the song Like a Rolling Stone and his July 25th performance of the New Newport Folk Festival where he played his first electric show. Um, side B is acoustic, but the songs, as you're going to hear with the song we're going to play, lyrically are just completely different from anything that Dylan was writing before this. Um, from a lyrical standpoint, he, he started to shift a little bit in 1964's Another Side of Bob Dylan, moving away from overt protest songs that defined his early career peak, notably with freewheeling Bob Dylan and The Times They Are Changing, into really more esoteric, experimental, and self-conscious songwriting of his mid-60s career peak. And this is really where you see that change happen. Um, This was of note, Dylan's first LP to break into the top 10 of the U.S. Billboard charts. And this album was recorded in a flurry from January 13th to 15th, 1965. Uh, which is the amount of time that Fish spent in Mexico in 2017. Just imagine that. Dylan made a transformative record. The record was composed throughout much of 1964's summer, as Dylan was staying in Woodstock, New York, staying up late, sleeping late, drinking wine, smoking cigarettes, and stumbling to his typewriter to blast out ideas. 
the inception of the record really rests in February 1964's composition, Mr. Tambourine Man, a song that shared qu- certain qualities with the record Another Side of Bob Dylan, but ended up taking a few steps further into the ethereal, psychedelic imagery that defines the best of his 1964 to 1966 era. Uh, Midway through the recording process, Dylan met the Beatles for the first time, which really helped to influence his recording style through Blonde on Blonde. And to help him develop the sound he was seeking, uh, which was a combination of folk and 1950s rock and roll, he hired bar band, uh, uh, the, the bar band featuring Robbie Robertson, LaVon Helm, and Garth Hudson of the Hawks, who would later become the band, to write and record initial takes. So, like I said above, um, this was a very, very quick recording session. The sessions began in January with all acoustic takes one day, and all but Bob Dylan's 115th Dream were scrapped, followed by an electric takes uh, on the next day. Here's where he recorded Love Minus Zero, No Limit, Subterranean Homesick Blues, She Belongs to Me, and Outlaw Blues. These were all selected for the album. And a couple days later, the final day of recording commenced with Maggie's Farm being recorded in one take. And the remainder of the album, On the Road Again, It's All Right Mom, Only Bleeding, Gates of Eden, and Mr. Tambourine Man, and It's All Over Now, Baby Blue, were all completed in the same day. To say that this album was a result of a burst of inspiration is almost an understatement, and to say that this album ruffled feathers is uh, quite the understatement. This album pissed a lot of people off, pissed your Pete Seeger types off, pissed off a lot of Dylan's fans who thought he was a protest artist, who thought that he was going to be a folk artist that was going to help to start this revolution in the mid-1960s. Dylan had other ideas in mind. Dylan wanted to be a transformative artist. Dylan didn't want to be held back by uh, the limits that anybody was imposing on him. And he knew that an album like this was really the directional shift he needed to take to move into uh, the next phase of his career, which uh, some would argue the 64 to 66 uh, uh, era of Dylan's career is his peak overall. Um, The song that we're going to play here It's All Right, Mom, Only Bleeding is the central masterpiece of the album. It's acoustic, but it sounds electric, and it's delivered from Dylan with a pithy and nasty kind of unveiling that would really define his songwriting through the next two albums. He just sounds pissed off throughout this song. Lyrically, it's one of his strongest works, and thematically it moves totally away from protest music into more societal, existential, and complex personal lyricism that define not just the next two years of his career, But really, when we get to the heart of it, the lasting impact of Bob Dylan for the next five decades. What we talked about with regards to his Rolling Thunder review uh, sessions and what came out of Blood on the Tracks, what comes in the late 90s that we're going to talk about here a little bit later, and even what he's doing right now um, uh, as a current recording artist, the, the, the big start of this is with this record. So... Um, We're going to hear a section of It's Alright Mom, Only Bleeding off of Dylan's Bring It All Back Home. Temptation's page flies out the door. You follow, find yourself at war. Watch waterfalls of pity roar. You feel the moan, but unlike before, you discover that you just be one more person crying. So don't fear if you hear A foreign sound to your ear It's all right, Ma 
I'm only sighing As some worn victory, some downfall Private reasons, great or small Can be seen in the eyes of those that call To make all that should be killed to crawl While others say don't hate nothing at all Except hatred Disillusion words like bullets bark As human gods aim for their mark Make everything from toy guns that spark To flesh-colored Christs that glow in the dark It's easy to see without looking too far That not much is really sacred All right, so for our last segment here We're going to focus on late-stage career peaks And the reason that we decided to focus on this was Um you know, when Fish came back in 2009, there was a brief period in time there for a couple of years that I think a lot of people had worried that the band was becoming something of a nostalgic act and that they weren't capable of fully surprising people as much as they had been in the past. And that, you know, while Fish shows certainly were an incredibly enjoyable experience, um, that at the end of the day, the band's peak periods had, had been behind them. What they showed us in late 2012, and especially here as we've argued with this ring, wingsuit set, the band really moved into a late late uh, era career peak, and something that maybe in 20 years uh, will look as a mid mid era career peak. Who knows? But um, for where we are right now, it really feels like this next step for the band, kind of something that was unexpected in their later stages of their career. And so we wanted to talk about where our three artists peaked at, uh, later in their overall careers and in their lives. And so kind of piggybacking on what I was saying here in the section before about Bob Dylan, um, I'm going to talk about the album Time Out of Mind and specifically the song Not Dark Yet. And as I was mentioning towards the end, you know, lyrically Dylan changed in 1964 where he really started focusing on personal lyrics. And you hear this album Time Out of Mind. I mean, there's nothing that resembles protest music on this song. This is Dylan exploring the mind, exploring death, exploring aging, exploring love and failure and lots of things that at 65 years old, uh, he was really, you know, um, feeling the weight of at this point in his life. So Time Out of Mind was Dylan's 30th record and his first record of original material since Oh Mercy came out in 1989. Uh, This was produced by Daniel Lenoir. And it has a very atmospheric sound and can be compared to Lanois' production and uh, work on um, Neil Young's 2010 uh, Le album, a record that just sounds nothing like Neil Young, but also Neil Young kind of in the sense that Time Out of Mind does for Dylan. Um, Mike's were placed in really strategic positions around the studio, and Lanois made some very specific decisions regarding the overall mixing of the album. Um, Lanois produced Oh Mercy, and Dylan enjoyed working with him at the time. However, following this record, Dylan has self-produced every single album that he's made and expressed disdain over the overall sound of Time Out of Mind. Um, The album's origins uh, came in the winter of 1996, when Dylan began writing songs from his farm in Minnesota. Uh, Since 1989, Dylan had released just three records, one original, Under the Red Sky, which uh, was pretty much panned critically and by by his fan base um, and two 
albums of traditional cover songs that were just to fulfill a record contract, uh, World Gone Wrong and As Good As I've Been to You. Um, and he had noted that where in his prime, he'd regularly have three to four songs just come to him a day. Now he struggled to write one to three a week if he was lucky. Um, but around the fall, the, the winter of 1996, songs just started pouring out of Dylan in a way that they hadn't in probably 10 years at this point in time. Um, Dylan ended up demoing some of these songs, something he really rarely does. Um, and he and Lanois wanted to get a true sense of what was possible through these songs. So they really kind of worked at them before they actually went into the studio. Um, in addition, Dylan wanted to replicate the sound of late 1950s LPs with lots of reverb, reverb lots of space. Um, and that's really what you hear when you listen to this record, especially like a song like Lovesick, the opener. Um, or standing in the doorway. These are just drenched in reverb and really don't sound anything like Dylan ever any, ever made before. Um, <clears throat> to a lot of people, Time Out of Mind was seen as Dylan's comeback, and some would argue it's his best record since 1975's Blood on the Tracks. Uh, at the time of his release, it certainly felt like an entry into his greater Canada work. It kick-started a near 10-year peak period for Dylan, or following this, uh, 2001's Love and Theft in 2006 Modern Times would follow as, um, uh, as, as some of his strongest records. Um, and this album, Time Out of Mind, would really define the next 20 years of his career, as well as help to format his, uh, his shift into dedicating his music towards the blues, rockabilly, and uh, honoring pre-1960s rock. Um, so the song that we're going to play here, Not Dark Yet, is really regarded as one of Dylan's best songs ever. and really feels like a peak moment for him with regards to writing openly and honestly about death. Um, this was record recorded at the start of the sessions of the album. And honestly, it's quite different from the rest of the, of the album and its lack of reverb and atmospheric sheen. So if you don't hear kind of what we were always talking about in this section about the overall sound of the album, I would say go and listen to a couple of songs I mentioned um, standing in the doorway and uh, um, lovesick because those definitely have a little bit more of that reverb sound. Um, but I would say, aside from the song Mississippi, which came off of uh, 2001's Love and Theft, although it was recorded for this record, um, Not Dark Yet is the last great song that Dylan's written. It's absolutely beautiful. It uh, is the kind of song that can just make your heart weep whenever you hear it. It's uh, one of my favorite songs that's ever been written, one of my favorite Dylan songs ever, and I'm excited for you guys to hear it now as well. Shadows are falling And I've been here all day It's too hot to sleep And time is running away Feel like my soul has Turn into steel I've still got the scars At the sounding nail There's not even room enough To be anywhere It's not dark yet But it's getting there And my sense of humanity Has gone down the drain 
behind every beautiful thing there's been some kind of pain she wrote me a letter and she wrote it so kind she put down in writing what was in her mind right Brian thank you for playing that um, I happen to love time out of mind I think it's to me the last classic Dylan record certainly love and theft and in modern times, if we're being generous, Tempest, after that, are all very good in their own way. But certainly, Time Out of Mind, and that song in particular, is uh, the one I can listen to front to back and really enjoy. So, wrapping up, in terms of latter stage career peaks, I'm going to cheat a little bit as regards Neil Young and just say, for him, the year is 1989 to 1997, Peaking with the 1997 live album, Year of the Horse. Neil Young's 80s albums, they kind of deserve their own podcast series because they're so strange. But uh, they were kind of confounding to fans and even more so to his record label at the time, which was Geffen, which actually had the balls to sue him for what they uh, they thought was purposely making music that didn't sound like Neil Young. I mean, there was like a Rockabilly tribute album. There was an album where he sings through a vocoder, lots of electric drums and synths, limp country western experiments. Uh, I'd be lying if I said I was familiar with all of it. But then again, he's hardly the first classic rocker to have a rough go of it in the 1980s. So, but both his fortunes and the fortunes of his fans changed dramatically with 1989's uh, album called Freedom. It's a generally excellent album that's both largely acoustic at points, and it also features some of his gnarliest guitar work since the late 70s. The rambling verses of the nine-minute song Crime in the City are very much sound like Dylan's, uh, Dylan's Desolation Row. The Ways of Love and Wrecking Ball are some of his most affecting ballads. There's a sarcastic cover of On Broadway that ends with Neil Young ranting about crack cocaine, because sometimes that's what Neil Young does. <laughs> And, uh, oh, yeah, this is the album that has Rock and the Freewold on it. Twice. There's an acoustic <laughs> one that opens the album and the electric one that ends it. This is the Neil Young way. You know he's not fucking around. He records two versions of a tune, a la Tonight's the Night or Rust Never Sleeps. Uh, that album had Hey, Hey, My, My uh, open and closing the record. So... What's interesting about Rockin' in the Free World is that it was officially released when I was 10 years old, because that's when Freedom came out in 89, when I was 10 years old. And I thought then, and kind of continued to think through high school, that this was a song off one of his classic 70s albums, because it was that classic sounding. I know, uh, like, Eddie Vedder and Neil Young, they sang it and did a duet at the 93 MTV Video Music Awards. It was only later I realized that this song came out in 1989. It just was such a modern-day classic of its time. I figured that it was no way it came out when I was alive, but it did. So, But in 89, really, he was just getting started. Uh, one year later, in 1990, he put out um, the big crazy horse comeback album, Ragged Glory. A little monolithic, but in chunks, it completely jams. 1991, he had his double live album, Weld. 1992, Harvest Moon, 
unofficial sequel to Harvest, almost entirely acoustic, very beautiful. 93 had his unplugged album. <clears throat> 1994, Sleeps with Angels. That was a crazy horse record that was um, kind of his response to the Kurt Cobain suicide. 1995, he made his record with Pearl Jam called Mirrorball. 96, Broken Arrow, very underrated batch of epic jams and shorter tunes with Crazy Horse. And then in 97, he peaked with Year of the Horse. It's a double live album. It's a victory lap. It was a tie-in with the uh, Jim Jarmus documentary containing both insane live footage of that tour and rare interviews throughout his career. And really, the fact that from 89 and 97, he put out a new record. Most of them are pretty flawless. I mean, it was as good a run as anyone could have hoped for, probably even better considering what he did in the 80s. I mean, it kind of brought back a lot of the good feelings of the 1970s, except at this point, obviously, he's a bit of an elder statesman. They're calling him the godfather of grunge, and he's going on TV wearing flannels and saying his plan of way, new bands, I like Pearl Jam. And that was kind of the extent <laughs> of the new bands that he liked. But, he did yeah. like Pearl Jam, though. Oh, no, he did like Pearl Jam quite a bit. I confirmed that he liked Pearl Jam. Yes, he really liked Pearl Jam. There was that, oh, God, I think we talked about this once in an earlier episode. June 24th, 1995, was a Pearl Jam show in Golden Gate Park. Eddie Vedder had food poisoning, so Neil Young thought he was going to come out and play the show and save the day. And none of these kids know who Neil Young was. I know who he was. I thought it was the coolest thing ever. <laughs> but anyhow, so let's see. Let's play a song from this era. Let's play Rockin' in the Free World, because why not? So <laughs> prepare for a <laughs> real change of direction. Bit of a letdown. <laughs> so I guess just to talk about kind of late career peaks and, you know, it, it's interesting, this 
going back to the beginning of, of wingsuit being sort of this, this way that, that fish kind of did, I think make a, or start maybe as Brian was saying, start a peak of, of the latter career with the uh, wingsuit performance. I think, I was thinking about Miles Davis and the, he had a lot of later career peaks, but this was sort of the one I'm going to talk about was sort of his last, I think. Um, whereas with fish, it just kind of kept going upwards even until now, which is really cool. Um, I'm going back to 1984 and as a disclaimer, my favorite years of Miles Davis are from basically 1957 to 1971, um, which encapsulate like, I don't know, four or five different eras, but that kind of 14 year period. So this 1984 is well outside of what I typically listen to, but it's still a good continuation of those themes that I've talked about, which is him continuously pushing himself to, you know, play with younger, more innovative musicians and stay, stay relevant and stay ahead. And, um, the the album we're going to talk about is called Decoy. Um, it this is much more in the area of Spyro Gyro Jazz Fusion, as uh, Dave mentioned earlier. But but there's still some some interesting stuff here on this album. Um, again, continuing on this idea that he can, he was always introducing and and bringing new musicians to the table and and to the scene and and. This album features someone who you guys might have heard of, John Schofield, who played guitar. This was, I think, his second album that he played on but with Miles. But just amazing if you go back to John Coltrane in the early 50s, how many musicians that Miles Davis brought into mainstream music. Um, it's it's really incredible. The, the list is too long to, to go through right now. But, you know, dozens of really famous musicians that got their start playing with Miles. And Schofield had been doing other things, but not on this kind of level of, uh, of exposure. Um, it's pretty interesting. So this album... The album before this one called We Want Miles um, won a Grammy for the best best jazz album, I think. And the reason that was that one was important, which is worth going back to, is that that album was the first um, time that it was it was from a live recording and um, it was the first time that he had played live in five years. And in his autobiography, he said that he basically spent those five years not playing the trumpet at all, um, but just doing cocaine and watching TV which is, you know, a pretty solid way to spend five years if you think about it. Um, but it's pretty interesting. So that's We Want Miles, and he won a Grammy for it. So if you just, you know, watch the news and do cocaine for five years and then go play a live show, you'll probably win a Grammy. Um, so that's just, I think that's good good life advice. But um, this album, which, which was nominated for a Grammy but didn't win, the reason I wanted to highlight it is just because of Schofield. I like his playing more than the guitarist that was on... Um, we want Miles, who's Mike Stern, who I'm sure Dave has an encyclopedic knowledge of Mike Stern. But um, I just like Schofield's playing a lot. And on this album, I think it's it's really good and um, wanted to play. Um, That's what happened, which is the last track on this album and is a uh, is a live track. Um, but just you'll hear the you'll hear Schofield and Miles Davis, which to me is a pretty cool combination, even considering the era of sort of you know cheesy uh cheesy jazz fusion so that's the way i would close it out here so hope you guys enjoy a few minutes of that
very much, Mr. B, for some 80s Miles Davis, uh, to challenge us once again before the end of, uh, of the episode. I think it's quite fitting that that's what we ended on, seeing as we talked about Wingsuit here. Um, yeah. So we, we covered a lot of music. Uh, we, we started at the top of this episode talking about Fish's performance of the Wingsuit debut album on Halloween 2013. Played you a few songs from that. And then we broke our uh, second part of the episode up into three segments. First of which we talked about bands that were working on on stage. We had Neil Young's Time Fades Away. Uh, the song was Last Dance. Followed by Miles Davis's So What? Off live at the Plug Nickel 65. And then we rounded out that section with Bob Dylan's Isis off of Rolling Thunder Review, a bootleg series covering his 1975-76 tour. Um, in segment two, we talked about transgressive breakthroughs, and we focused on the song Right Off by Miles Davis off of the album Jack Johnson. Um, we talked about World on a String from Neil Young off of Tonight's the Night and wrapped that section up with uh, It's Alright Mom Only Bleeding Bob Dylan's Bringing It All Back Home. Our final segment focused on late stage career peaks. So Bob Dylan started us off with Knock Dark Yet off of the uh, 97 release Time Out of Mind uh, Neil Young we heard Keep On Rockin' in the Free World off of uh, Dave Did a Big overview of his 89 to 97 late era uh, peak period where neil was just reuniting with crazy horse playing with pearl jim writing new songs just being an all-around badass uncle to uh the grunge scene <laughs> and finally wrapped it up with uh that's what happened off of miles davis's decoy so just a reminder we are on social media we're on twitter it's at underscore beyond the pond one word we've got a medium page for the time being it's medium.com slash beyond the pond and on spotify we've got the playlist the beyond the pond podcast songs that we attempt to update either right before or shortly after a new episode is put out and in terms of our publishing structure you guys know it at this point in time we are every other Tuesday. Tuesdays have absolutely no feel, so it's a great opportunity to go beyond the pond. Um, and just one quick note here before we wrap things up. We are, uh, as we noted here at the top of the show, we are part of the Osiris Podcast Network. You can find us as well as some other great podcasts at OsirisPod.com. And uh, really want to thank... The Podfather himself, RJB, for joining, <laughs> for joining us here and uh, walking us through Wingsuit as well as doing some massive deep dives into some really great artists uh, that mean a lot to all of us and, and some great songs from them. Thank you so much for joining us, RJ. Yeah. Thank you very really much. Fun. Yeah, it was really fun. Um, this was It came together so perfectly that, uh, you know, the initial idea of revisiting Wingsuit seemed kind of silly, but it actually worked out really well. So thank you guys for pushing the thinking and doing such great planning and, and you know, thinking ahead of time. This is awesome. We, we, we enjoyed this greatly. This was fantastic. Right up our alley. Very much so. But at this point, it's getting kind of late. The pod's been running kind of long. There's plenty of things for you to listen to and go back to listen to. 
So we'd like to say come back in two weeks. We'll join hands. We'll sing Kumbaya. We will do many deep dives. Come back and together we will go beyond the pond.